Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Tonight is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. I thought it was last week, but I felt inspired to go back and wrap up a couple things tonight that I didn't really get to do last week. Now, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, remember, I started this series back 41 messages ago, and my title is Life on God's Terms, dash, the Sermon on the Mount. It goes without saying, if we take our time and either read those three chapters or we study them, you become aware of the challenge that is in the scripture that we have largely ignored through the years or things that God states that are true that we don't see enough people doing it that we feel inspired to do it also. We kind of set things aside. And for most people, at least in my experience, who read the Sermon on the Mount or who sit through the teaching of it, get uneasy more than once in listening to it. We don't mind people reading the Bible. It's when you explain what it means that it becomes not only personal but convicting. And conviction is a good thing because conviction is what drives us to God. So when we go through here, we reach the end of this chapter, the seventh chapter, and it begins with wherefore. And as I said last time, when you see the word wherefore, you need to know what it's there for or why it's there. Because in conclusion, it's like the Lord saying, now having said what I've said for three chapters, we come down to this. This is what life as a Christian is all about. Churches are full of ideas and opinions and activities and displays to the world to try to show that we love the Lord or we care. But what it comes down to essentially is a very simple message. Wherefore, he said, verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. And then he begins to describe a wise man, a wise man who's building a house. And he knew that you had to establish a house right, so he took the time to dig down deep, found a rock as a foundation, and built the house. The story is not about digging in foundations, so you could use that. This verse is all about us and how we relate to what God says in the Bible. Because the world literally, and trust me with this, the world is full of religious people who take exception to what God says. The Bible has been many versions rewritten and try to alter what is said so that it no longer becomes convicting, but it becomes an option. But Jesus made it clear. This is the simplicity that we end this Sermon on the Mount with. Whoever hears my sayings and does them is a wise man. And whoever hears these sayings of mine and he doesn't do them, he's a foolish man because with both of these men, they're going to be tested. The winds are going to blow. Trouble's going to come. The sifting is going to take place. And what you have built on in your life, whether you've been sitting here for 30 years or three hours, you've gained a lot of information. You have heard a lot, whether you've received it, kept it, activated it or not, you have heard it. And what you do with it on what you're calling your foundation, your Christian life, how you're going to live this life or how you're living it now, it'll be put to the test. And when it's put to the test, it will either stand the test or it will fall. But it will not fall because the Bible is weak. It'll fall because, well, as he said, we didn't do the digging down that we should have done to get to the bottom of the issue and establish ourselves on these eternal truths. So it's as simple as that. Now, I ended last time by saying there are three concluding points about these three or four verses here, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. One is that God requires us, not ask us to be, but requires us to be faithful, hearing and doing. And secondly, he wants us to be wise, he didn't call us to be unfaithful. God didn't call us to be foolish. He called us to be wise, thinking, 
thoughtful, obedient people. And he told us that we're going to be put to the test. And he shows us in many places, like in James chapter 1, that testing is vital. Testing is absolutely essential in order for you and I to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a statement, lacking in nothing, perfect and complete. All of this is through the process of receiving the word, accepting the word, having the word tested and either holding on to it, trusting it, or letting go of it because, well, you're afraid it wouldn't work or something. But this is where we are, and this is where I want to go back to this evening. James 1.22, he said in relation to what we're saying, be ye doers of the word and not just what? Hearers only. And then he says these words, which you should be familiar with. If a man chooses to go to church and listen to the word, but he does not choose to do what the Bible says for the many reasons he has that he cannot or will not. Then he said he will reach false conclusions. He'll come to a decision that is flawed. He said a man who is a hearer of the word and not a doer deceiveth himself. And the word deceiveth is a long word, which simply means he will reach a false conclusion. But that's what basically man's religion consists of. It is flavored with a lot of scriptural truth, but it's flawed with a lot of man-made exceptions to that truth. And people like that because they have the freedom, they think, to pick and choose what they're ready for and set aside what they're not ready for. They become the God of their own little kingdom. They do things their way instead of God's way. And then they are offended when you tell them that. Because the church is full of people who do look for a comfortable and a happy place to find themselves some form of religion that pleases them. And yet God favors nobody. The word is, as it's been said in at least a couple of places, the sower and the seed, the word is very offensive to some people. Because living it requires all that you can, and it makes no excuses for if you don't. God doesn't say, well, you know, I know you're trying. That's, that's all you can do, and that's good enough. If you don't, well, you know. We say that because we don't want to hurt people's feelings, but God never says that. So we want to look tonight in conclusion back again at the question we only hinted at last week. The question is, how is it that some people will hear and do, will do the word, and why is it that some people won't? Now, I think it's very important for us to deal with. That's why I'm taking the whole night to do it. Why is it that some in a church, ours or anybody else's, the one our parents were in, our great-grandparents, or any of our ancestors, in the days of the Bible, in the New Testament, what is it about some people who are in the meetings, faithful in attendance, in which they will not do what it said, and others who will. What's the difference? What makes one a willing to do person and another an unwilling to do person? I'd like to deal with that because if by some chance tonight God locates us as one of these people, then we have something to deal with in our lives, some way to improve ourselves or to measure ourselves or to fix something that obviously is broken. Number one tonight, reasons that I think make this distinction, there are those in the church who have no real interest in what God says. They have no real interest in what God says. Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn to that, we'll try to verify that. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. They just don't have any real interest in the word. They might like to hear a certain preacher. They might like to go and hear the Sunday specials or the music. And you know it's true. They like the presentation. We have committees in churches that do nothing more than prepare the church visually for a Sunday morning service. The special flowers, the colors, the matching this and matching that. So that when you're in that environment, you're comfortable. And you like you like the personality, say, of the preacher or, or how efficient the, 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 the service is run and, and all the amenities that goes with that and plenty of, you know, bathrooms, parking space, nursery. 
And when you go there, you don't leave feeling like you've been really convicted about a lot of sins or you haven't really had to deal with something. In fact, you don't even have to take your Bible most of the time. The church prepares that for you in the little slot in the seat in front of you. So that it's not really, it's not really a learning center as much as it is religion. Now, you know it's true. We may not want to say that because we feel so ugly when we say it, but it is true because I grew up in it. I've been, I've traveled many, many places, many different kinds of churches, and I've been in some of these situations, not too many, but I've been in some of them. And I know how it is because when you start teaching, when you start teaching in that kind of, of an environment, though there's a few that get it, you'll find that there's a heaviness that comes well, as a preacher, I can say this, you won't understand it, but there's a kind of a heaviness that comes and it makes it very difficult for you to make your point or to preach a sermon because there's resistance. How many of you believe there are spirits in churches? That there are spirits which do nothing more than, than twist or distort what was said to the person's mind who's hearing it so that the person is questioning whether or not that's right. And then they begin to oppose it, and I don't know about that, or whatever. They're not interested. It would be like you sitting in here tonight text messaging somebody during church service. See, I'm talking to you too. You, you would qualify for this. You have no interest in something that not only is vital, but something that is essential. Now, you may be using your phone to follow. You know, many people use the Bible, and they had the Bible there, and they notes it. Fine. But I'm just saying that uh, you have to check your heart. They have no real interest in what the Bible says. Now, here's what God says about people with no interest. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. He said, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to text message during church. See how easy that was? or to fall asleep during church. Is that inconvenient, improper? Of course it is. They're not really alert and open to the word. They didn't pray for they got here to, to learn things because when you say things that, that is knowledge, things that God gives, there are a lot of people and I'm talking about nice people. I'm not talking about ugly, old, mean, ugly people. I'm talking about nice, well-to-do, socially proper people who hear what you say and pigeonhole it. Well, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for that. Pew. I don't know how that would help me. I, mean, I don't need to hear that. that that's not for me. Pew. And they begin to sort out what is said and put it into little slots. And then when there's something said that suits them, Amen but they really have no interest in the whole counsel of God. I don't know if religious people have that much interest in the whole counsel of God. Would you just briefly go to Ezekiel chapter 12 and Zechariah, Ezekiel 12 and Zechariah chapter 7. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 12, God describes... One of the reasons people don't do well at all. Verse 2. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house. Now, now Ezekiel here is preaching to people who will not listen, like in Jeremiah's day. They don't want to hear that. How many of you know people didn't appreciate Jeremiah? Well, if, if you've read his book or read the history of it, uh, nobody liked him. Nobody liked what he said. They, wanted, they tried their best to get rid of him, to eliminate him. He gave them a prophetic word from the mouth of God, and they hated him for it. It's like we need to understand in this day, there is a spirit that works in religion that hates truth because truth brings conviction. Conviction brings opportunity to get rid of that and get right. And the devil doesn't want you to have to do that. He wants you to feel good about who you are, what you believe, and after all, nobody's perfect. So in Ezekiel 2, he said twice, he said, the son of man thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house. Notice, he said, which have eyes to see, and they see not. They have ears to hear, and they hear not, for they are rebellious. He said the same thing in verse, at the end of verse uh, 3, and he said the verse, same thing in verse 9. They are rebellious. Now, I believe this. 
I believe that rebellion is a choice. I do. I believe that rebellion in any form, children, adults, I believe it's a choice. And I believe when, when it comes to spiritual rebellion or rebellion against God, it is a man who simply says, well, I'm not going to do that. You point out the wrong in a situation. Two people are squabbling. And let's say you're neutral. You're a judge of this thing as we should be. And you see where they're both wrong. And you say, well, you're wrong and you're wrong. People don't like that. And so one of them starts justifying his wrong. Well, that's rebellion. That's a form of rebellion. It's an unwillingness to bend the will to the agreement with God and let God be God and let his way be the right way. And when you won't do that, you're a rebel. Now, you don't want to be a rebel because a rebel has no place in God's economy and what God is doing. And I'll tell you something else. If you're a rebel, you've never had to pray that God would help you be a good one. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Nobody ever praised God. I'm, I'm not a good enough rebel. God, help me to be meaner and more ugly and more resistant to you. Lord, make me stiff-necked and stubborn. Nobody ever, that's so natural to be like that. I mean, we have to dig in deep to overcome that stuff. But that's the way it is. In Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 11, he said there that these are people who refused to do something. Zechariah 7 and verse 11, but they refused to hearken pulled away the shoulder, stopped their ears that they should not hear. Let me ask you a question. Could they have heard what God was saying? Could they have been corrected, spared, and delivered? But why didn't that happen? Because they pulled away the shoulder. They did not want to hear what was said. They did not want to hear that. Even when God spoke from the mountain, remember Mount Sinai when the it's described as the smoke was swirling and thunder and lightning in the mountain and the trumpet was blaring and the earth was shaking and the people drew back in fear. Remember what, you may not remember, what they said to Moses was, you speak to us, not him. And that's true today. If he speaks, we'll die. If you speak, we'll make it. They didn't say it like that. But that's, that's the way it is. Just a lot of people are just, they just don't have any real interest in what's said. I've watched people here through the years, more young folks than anything else, draw pictures, pick on each other, brothers do that, and sometimes with a little sister and not paying attention. They have no interest. They're really not interested in this, but they learn how to do this. Are you with me? They learn how to sing the songs. They know when you're supposed to do, they know how to do all of this. They know how to say amen. They know how to say, well, I'm trusting God. They know how to say the blood of Jesus. They learn to do that because we do that. But deep down in their heart, they have never crossed over that, that void between the old and the new. They've never been born again. They've just picked up religious ways. And when they get older, they'll bring that into the church. And the preacher will have a real hard time getting to them because they have learned they don't have to receive that because they're accepted the way they are. And we don't deal with it. So a lot of people, in light of what the Sermon on the Mount says about hearing and doing, a lot of people don't hear and thus don't do because they're not interested. Let me give you a second reason tonight. A second reason is because they're dull of hearing. That could happen to us very easy. We could go back, some of you that were here, or some of you that have been around this for 20 years anyway, or 30. Bonnie and I have been in this for 40 plus years. And I know how eager there was at one time to go to a meeting, listen to a tape, get together and talk about spiritual matters, or go to church services. And then get together and just talk about what we heard and what God is saying and how you understand things. I mean, it was just exciting. It was, it was indeed exciting. I also know that down through the years, as I've looked at people in a whole movement, I was birthed into it. I came into this thing when it started. I'm still in it. And I have seen 
a lot of people come and a lot of people go from this so-called faith message, which was so vital, so important and absolute, and so many have gone. Many of them were preachers. Most of them were people sitting in seats like you're sitting in. And it seems like they say, this was their reason they say that they lost interest. They got saturated. They got saturated. That's like saying it's God's fault. The reason I'm not doing well tonight is God's fault. He gave me too much. God taught me too much. I have too much, I have too much truth. I'm so full of this. I, I've, heard, I've heard so much of what God says. I'm just so saturated. Therefore, I'm in decline. Now, you might be able to tell that to a game show host somewhere, but you can't tell that to God. You will never in this life ever as a Christian, as a true Bible believer, you'll never be saturated. Because as long as the Bible says you are poor in spirit, you have vast amounts of room for more. We know very little yet today as we should know it. We haven't come near as far as we should have come. But at least we're on the journey. Amen. And God is faithful and he's going to finish what he started. Turn to Hebrews 5. You know where that is. <clears throat> Hebrews 5 and verse 11. This was a complaint. Now, in case you think preachers don't have a right to complain, this one did. Oh, mean Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, oh, mean somebody. Oh, mean thing. And he said in verse 11, talking about Melchizedek and a really interesting teaching about this picture this type of Christ in the high priest Melchizedek had a good revelation. Apparently he said, you know, I'd love to teach that. I'd love to bring that to you. Well, do it, Paul, do it. Well, now listen to what he said. Now listen to what he said. I'd like to, I'd like to undo it all for you. What a wonderful picture it is that God showed me. And the reason I don't, he said, I have whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered seeing what? seeing that you are dull of hearing. Let me read for you another translation. I don't endorse these. This was called the Montgomery translation. Here's what he said. I just put this down here for you. Concerning him, I have much to say and much that is hard to make clear to you because you have grown dull of hearing. Could that be possible? So see, it's implying, it's implying that at one time they weren't dull of hearing because they have become, which means they weren't always. Always dull of hearing would go back to point one. They just had no interest in it. But these people obviously had interest in it. They had come, and they had been enlightened, apparently, and they had interest in it. And they grew to a certain amount, but then something, whatever happens, people get busy. Maybe their kids grow up. They get interested. They get more involved in the world and things of the world and family matters and affairs and this and that and thus and so. And it's so easy to set the word and your need for it aside. Apparently they did something like that. He said, you, you still have a need that somebody go back and teach you the ABCs of Christianity. I mean, that, that's your capacity. That's all you want. He said, the reason is, is because you have become Dull of hearing. Now, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Because it is true. I can relate to this from where I stand and what I do with my life more than half of my life. I understand this. I understand that you could have a good message. You could have a good word, something you were inspired by, and yet have a very difficult time bringing it because people are dull of hearing. It's Wednesday night, brother. We worked all day long. We're kind of weary and tired, and, and I get in these seats. You know, it's just tough to stay awake, and, and you know, sometimes you go too long. I got to get my kids up in the morning, and I've had a hard day, and I, I need my rest. Well, there's an easy solution. Just let's don't have church on Wednesday night. Then you can, you can go home, and you fall asleep in your chair while you watch Howdy Doody or something. That dates you, doesn't it? Who is that? Well, that's a long time ago. But maybe you, if you stay home, we don't have church on Wednesday night. Your kids can get up and go to school uh, like they do every other morning. We have to be burdened with hearing the gospel. 
Or maybe, maybe if we just don't have church on Wednesday night, we don't, then that's just one more excuse we can eliminate and, and, and remove that much conviction from our life. Then we don't have to say, oh, i got to go to this church. Is this church? Oh, man. And then see, if we don't have church, you don't have to do that. We just have Sunday morning meeting like a lot of folks do, power down a little bit and have us a little church meeting. The good old boys, the good old girls come together. Let's sing a few little songs. Come on now. Let's just, somebody got anything to say this morning? Let's do something good. Come on now. Let's, you know, let's, let's go home and feel good about it. Let's do that. I mean, some of the excuses that people make are like that. And because you won't do that, then you have to preach this. You think now you came here because you either traditionalized, if you like that word, you've been traditionalized and, and, and geared to a Wednesday night meeting, or else you had to go because your parents, or you came... You know, you, you never know. You might have a little bit of interest in it, but your, your ability to receive the word has gone from an hour down to maybe 35 or 40 minutes. And at that point, we're getting like the Denoms, you know. It, they're, they're trained for 25 minutes of power. And after that, it's kind of like... <sighs> Sometimes it shows up while you're singing. Not, not you, I'm talking about... Those other places, you know, when people are singing, they just don't, they don't have any gusto, any exuberance. It's like we sing those songs all the time. We do, don't we? And yet, and yet, and yet, they turn on their radio, go into the grocery store in the morning, and a song they've heard 300 times, come on, shh, 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 I want to hear this, I want to hear this. Oh, Okay. You see, we can be dull of hearing. I'm not saying we are here. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying it is easy to get dull of, of hearing and excuse yourself from having to listen with intensity or pay attention because you know eventually he's going to be done. We're going to leave and go home, shake a hand, tell everybody you're glad to see and they're going to go home. And you begin to have an artificial relationship with the Lord where nothing is coming in because nothing's going out. The channel that used to be open has kind of got a lid on it because you have determined this is all I want and that's all I'm going to get and I'm not going to have any more now. Or you can say, I don't need to go to church on Wednesday night. i got other things that I need to take catch up on or do, and so I'm not going. To stay, I'm staying at home. You can do that. And then when I say something about not being here on, on Wednesday night, what are you talking about me for? Well, just come and we won't talk about you no more. <laughs> all you have to do is Come. Well, I get bored to tears. So do I, looking at you. <laughs> I really don't. I just said that for you. But you become dull of hearing. And let's face it. Sometimes it's maybe the messenger. Maybe it's the message. Maybe there's not much anointing on an ill-prepared message or a too busy messenger. Is that possible? Amen. And so what is brought forth, God doesn't back it. He doesn't anoint it because not much has been put into it because the preacher, like the people, can get used to this thing. It becomes a routine. It mires down into a rut. And then the whole system is just a ritual of religion. If we don't stir up the gift that's within us, you and me, if we don't motivate ourselves as God directs us to, like David, you know, he strengthened himself in the Lord. If we don't begin to approach God with more interest in what we do, then this is all we're ever going to have. This is as much as you'll ever be, and nothing else beyond this will ever happen. But I choose, by the words of my mouth, to believe it will be better. Because I do not have to be mired down in anything. I don't. God hasn't let me down for 43 years. I haven't been disappointed in God in a long time. There's times I thought I was, and I realized it was my little boo-hoo babyfied problems. There wasn't nothing wrong with God, just being tested, poor little thing. And then you learn, and you look back, and you laugh, and then you watch others going through the same things. You think, come on now, you've got to recover from this. This thing will whip you if you're not careful. 
You've got to put more interest in God. All of us do. Otherwise, we will become, as he said here, dull of hearing, where some of the things in studying, some of the things that you study, you think, boy, this would be so good to teach, but now this has happened. You think, man, I'd hate to get started on this and be really into it and then die about the third night because nobody shows, you know, everybody just, it's just dead. So you think it shouldn't be like that shouldn't be like that because the writer of Hebrews says, I have some good things to say here, but it's hard to be uttered. It's hard to get it out. It's hard to make it the way, as God showed it to me, it's hard to make it like that for you because, boy, there's sometimes there's not only resistance, but there's just this in, indifference. We don't want things to become flat, do we? This life should be like the song, something in my heart, like a stream running free, makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and what he's done for me, something in my heart like a stream running free. And I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. That's the way it's supposed to be. But if we have to pump that up and try to make it that way, well, maybe that's a sacrifice. That'd be better than nothing. I would rather you do that than to not do that. Amen. How many of you know that a sacrifice of praise is exactly that sacrifice? It doesn't mean you feel good about it, but it means you got it to do. And so therefore, you do it. Third thing. Many are just unable to understand and profit from the word. They just can't get it. They can't. They can come, they can go to any church service in the world they can listen to any truth, any Bible truth, anywhere at any time in the world, and they cannot get it. It doesn't compute. It's not comprehended. It doesn't register. Now, that is a solemn situation when a person cannot receive what God is saying. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. It's not able to get what the Lord is saying. They cannot comprehend. They can't even compute it and put it into right perspective. They can't do that. Now, here's a reason why people can't get it. It has nothing to do with IQ. It has nothing to do with your grade point average in school. I'm so thankful. It has nothing to do with any of that. Just like preaching. Preaching has nothing to do with how good a preacher a man is. How good they are with words. It has nothing to do with that. It all depends on the anointing. Remember Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He was accused once by his tormentors of, they said, his speech is contemptible. I mean, he wasn't any fancy Dan going out there preaching, but God anointed his words. They were directed by God to people's hearts who wanted to hear him. And very few, it seemed, wanted to hear what he had to say. They were connected with him. The Spirit of God just made them to know that this, this is coming from the Lord, even from that vessel up there. He's not very good, but, but boy, when he speaks. Remember the story I told you about the street front once and that, that senator that was walking down, meditating, and walked by the little street front church and the man was hollering. Remember that? He'd been in church his whole life. His whole life, he had been a dignified church member of the big church where all the important people go. And one night, in his problems pondering, he walked by the little street front church down on Shelby Street in Louisville, down next to Nanny Goat Trot Alley. There is such a place. And he stopped to hear a preacher, no education, contemptible speech, all of his adjectives and verbs and nouns were all mixed up. His plurals and, and singers, were, they were all messed up. And yet, the words as they came out of his mouth pierced this guy's heart. Nobody had ever done that before. I just made that story up. What I'm saying is that you don't have to have a special vessel in order to grow or to understand. You only need the anointing. That's the only thing. That's the only way you can be taught. And there's some who don't have that, not on their hearts. 
and they can't get it. Look in first, again, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Your Bible says, Neither can he know them. What does that mean? He can't comprehend it. He cannot. He's an intelligent person. He's a thinking man. In college or in school or in whatever correspondence he's in, crossword puzzle, he is sharp and witty. But when it comes to the simple gospel that Jesus gives to his sheep, he can't get it. It just doesn't register. This is why. This is one reason why it's like that. He says he is a natural, he's a natural man. The dictionary describes a natural man as one who lives under the influences of his senses and his flesh. He is governed by how he feels about something or his intellect. He is governed and motivated by what he thinks or how he sees it. An intellectual man, a very, a very intellectual person, a very brilliant, smart man can sit and hear the gospel if, he's, if he qualifies here with his natural heady mind and not understand a thing that's said. He can write a book about it, but it'll be what we call liberalism because he tries to take spiritual matters into his own hands and write what those things mean. And really, he has no right to handle that in the first place. There's some hard things in the Bible that God has to say about people who have no business approaching him or handling his word. It's not theirs to handle. And so he said here, the natural man, he cannot, he cannot receive it. The word natural is translated sensual in James 3, 5, where it describes the kind of wisdom that the devil gives. You remember in James 3 and verse 5, it says that when there's fighting and devouring in the church inside, choosing and winning and losing, he said this kind of wisdom does not come from the Father. But this kind of wisdom, this way you're doing things, is, and he describes it as sensual. It's natural. It pertains to yourself, your flesh, natural knowledge, the animal appetites, whatever you want to describe. But it's all about what you can get, what you can understand, how you can figure it out, how you comprehend it. And a, an intelligent, natural man will only listen to so much of this, and he'll finally walk away because he will say, I don't get nothing out of that. I don't get nothing. I don't get anything out of that. That's that contemptible speech. I don't get anything out of that. Well, you can't. And if I tell him you can't get anything out of it, you can't understand what I'm talking about. As simple as it is. Uh, God knows I pray for that. As simple as it is, you can't get it. And how offended he is because he, in his own estimation, measuring himself by other people, He's a pretty smart man. And if anybody's gotten somewhere in life, he really has. And how dare you to tell me that I can't understand you because it's something spiritual. But that's what he's talking about. They come, they want to argue, they want to debate, but they can't get it. Remember what Jesus said one time? Peter said, uh, he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They're going to do, do this and that. And Peter said, oh, no, you're not going to do that. In, in Matthew 16 and verse 23, and Jesus said to Peter, Jesus said, get thee behind me. Talking to Peter, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. He said, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but of man. Now, if that same spirit, that same devil motivates a man's belief system, if that same kind of an anti-spirit is in a, a spiritual leader and he sees that people won't tolerate a lot of just plain old Bible truth and Bible teaching, but they want fun and games and systems and programs and activities and trips, he gives them that instead of the word. Why? Because he himself savoreth not the things that be of God. But he savors, has an appetite for the things that be of man. He savoreth not. The word savors means to have a mind for, a mindset. You don't have a mind for the Lord. Now, folks, this is one of the reasons 
This is one of the reasons why people don't get it. They, they really can't. They just can't get that. What about, the, in, in the same light, a natural man being a carnal or a fleshly man? Turn to Romans chapter 8. This is a point I'm trying to make tonight in case we've forgotten. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and does it, as opposed to whoever hears my word and will not do it. Our question is, how is it that some who've been in church or who go to church still will not do what they hear and others, when they hear it, they will do it? Why is that? And we've shown you two or three reasons so far. Here's one that goes along with the natural, natural man. It says that in chapter 8 and verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, one, you would say it's an either or. It's one or the other. You either like the things that make you feel good and things you like to do and give you liberties and freedoms to play and do. You really put that first in your life. Maybe you're a sports addict and, or, boy, that's where your whole existence is. That's what you seek after, plan for, because that's where you get so much enjoyment. He said, a man after the flesh gets his pleasure from the flesh. But a man after the spirit, he savors or he seeks after the things of the spirit. There are some people who just get a whole lot more out of something spiritual than they do some dumb something out there. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is what? death. That's not good. That is not good. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Here's why. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God for, notice, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now your Bible says something like that, doesn't it? Something clear like that? Enmity means hostile, in opposition to. A man who's in the flesh wants the service to end as quick as he can, wants to get out of here because he has things he wants to do, places he wants to go, people he wants to see, and please don't drag on the service and don't somebody give a lengthy testimony. I got to get out of here. I got things to do. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. A person who says, don't, don't preach about that. Don't, don't talk about holidays and stuff like that. Don't, don't condemn spooky. Don't, don't do that. Halloween, don't do that. That, listen to me, listen to, that attitude is flesh. You find your joy and your pleasantness in things that you like to do. You like to goof off and run around, feel good, drive crazy. Some of you all drive terribly bad, terribly, terribly bad. Kind of bad then. <coughs> A little bit bad. But that's your flesh. It's never been harnessed by the Spirit of God which tells you to slow down. I've never seen so many young people drive fast in my life as I have heard of. I haven't met you on the road yet. I live on a narrow road, and I know this. You've got to hug the right. When you come over the hills, get as far right as you can. Don't hit the mailbox. And sometimes you meet people, and you just have to get off the road because some people come at you so fast they can't correct. It should never be, should it? And they love for me to tell them that. Thank you so much for, for putting me down. I'm not. I'm putting your foot down. That one on the right side or you hit that pedal with. Or put. How many of you know that, listen to me, all of you, Spirit of God has something to say about the way you live. We, we measure people by how you drive. We measure each other by how you dress, how you look. We do. Whether you're racy or ignorant looking, you're, you're measured like that. I told a young man one time, back whenever, I said, you know, I'm sure God wants to make a leader out of you. And if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to grow up and look like one. 
You have to look like a man. You're going to have to tighten up yourself and just certain things I, that I mentioned. Because we do measure people like that. How many of you would like, if I came up here seriously, and I'm, you know I'm making this up, if I had my uh, jeans on and my, and my new cotton shorts up high, but my jeans were down, and I came in here with, uh, and I raised my hand up, and there was a big tattoo on my, on my arm. What would you do? <laughs> Leonard would stand up and say, we're, we're, we're done, we're done. <laughs> Wouldn't you think something's wrong? If you were a parent, you would be thinking, I don't want my kids to hear this. I don't, I don't know what he's going to say, but I don't, I, he looks so bad, I don't want him to listen to him. And don't get me off on the tattoos. I do, I'm already off. <laughs> I do not know what it is about this particular generation and tattoos. I do not know what it is about all these lightning bolts going down your arm, bushes going up your back, novels on your arm. I see these basketball players that are, they, they, uh, I, don't, I don't know what they are. I don't know what you call all of that. People got that stuff all over them. I mean, I can tell about one I saw at Zaxby's the other day, but then I had to repent later for what I said, but places where people put tattoos. And then in order for you to see that tattoo, they have to undo some clothing so you can see that tattoo. I don't know what it is about tattoos. I know that in Leviticus 19, verse 20-something, it said, Thou shall not make any mar prints, marks, cut marks, and put prints on your body. Now, people who hear that and go ahead and do it, I'm talking about you. I remember one night I was talking in the old church down on Clay Street, talking about earrings and how that earrings symbolize the Ishmaelites, for they wore earrings. And I was talking about how that we don't need those, and, and it's just not necessary for you to put a, well, cut a hole in your ear and hang something down from your ear to decorate your ear or the side of your head or something. Now, I don't go around making a big deal of it. I do about pierced ears. And this one member of the church came up after it was over and said, how do you like that? Now, I want you to know that she qualified for Zechariah 7, 11, and Ezekiel 12, verse 2. She was a rebel. She still is. Is she in this room tonight? No. But she was a rebel of whom I have no respect for. I hope she gets straightened out. It's been a long time. I know even in one case when our girls were not allowed to wear pants in those days, she let one of the girls in our church keep, keep the girls' pants at her house and said, you come down here, you can wear them. How would you like that? Somebody in the church, a brother or sister that would just rebel against your principles at home or what the church taught. I'm saying these people get in a church. They sit there like members in good standing. They are intelligent sweet-acting people, but inside they are full of rebellion and you cannot teach them and they will not succumb to what you're saying. They don't want to hear it. They just simply don't want to hear it. So, back again to Romans 8, verse 7. Fleshly people is because they're carnal. They are, listen to it, they're not subject to the law of God and what does it say? Neither indeed can they be. Does your Bible say that? Well, what does that mean? It means they can hear the word. Anybody can hear it. A lot of people listen. But there are many who cannot do it. Now, there's at least four places in the New Testament from Isaiah to Acts and, and uh, Deuteronomy 1 and other places where the Bible said they have ear and a, a sword to see, Matthew 13, they have eyes to see, remember this, and they cannot see. They have ears to hear, but they cannot hear. And you'll find in all of that because God has closed their eyes and God has shut their ears from spiritual truths. 
they hear natural things, a natural, they hear the Bible as a natural word. They make opinions about it, but they cannot live it. They cannot receive it. It does not compute. I know people may not agree with that, but that is the truth. They just simply cannot receive it. They are unable, just like a natural man, he cannot receive the things of God. Carnal people can't. People that are in the flesh, carnal, Greek word for flesh, self, get the word self, selfish, self-serving, lawless, iniquitous, all of those words, would, would, they're not translated the same way, but those are all fleshly expressions of people that can't receive the word. They just can't do it. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 43. Jesus said, Why do you not understand my word? Does your Bible say that? John 8, 43, Jesus asked a question to these people. He said, why do you not understand my words? Why do you not hear my word? Or how do you say it? Why do you not understand my speech? You know how he answered it? Even because you cannot hear my word. Now, we all know they have natural ears and could hear what he said. But God is speaking here in spiritual terms. You can't you can't figure out, you can't put it in its right perspective, you can't, you'll never be any different the rest of your life than you are in this present state because nothing will ever compute that can change you. You may be improving yourself, you quit drinking, quit smoking, quit doing this, going there, wearing that, but that's the best you can ever do in this life. That's it. Because the only way a man can change in this life is for the entrance of God's word to come into your heart. Conviction wraps itself around that word and the word becomes a master of your actions and, and you command your will and you begin to do things that are right. It's the cross. It's crucifying the flesh. And you do that because of the inspiration that God gives us in his word. This is the way we're supposed to live. He said in John chapter 10, if you just move over a couple chapters, chapter 10 and verse 27, he says the only people that really can hear his word, the only people that really can get it are his sheep. Remember that? Does it say that? My sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them. Well, they're the ones that, that understand what he's saying. This is the way it works. Oh, I pray, I pray, you know, in Jesus' name. Because I know this, there are a lot of people are going to be in the midst of the church until the end. Church is going to be full of a lot of people that the Bible calls tares. You know this is true, don't you? A lot of tares will be in the church at the end. They can only be separated by what God does from above. They grow together. A tare is convinced that he is everything a wheat is, and a wheat can never stop striving for more. One is satisfied, I'm good as they are, you know, I go, what, you know better? Whereas the wheat is still, still praying, still believing God, still confessing the word, still activating, still believing God for something. I would to God that we in this church would be believing for something all the time keeping my faith at, the, at God's supermarket. Just keep it going all the time. I'm believing for this, and I'm believing for one of them. I'm believing to go to Israel. Would you all like to do that? Well, no, apparently not, but I, boy, I, I would have thought everybody would say, amen. There's no magic in Israel. It's just a place, isn't it? It's just a place, special place in the Bible, but it's just a place. But anyway, I'm saying you ought to believe, you ought to have your faith operating for something. Stretch it out there and believe for a new one. A new what? Whatever's in your heart. A new washing machine. Yes. She said, yes. A new car, a new truck. Yeah, yeah. Use your faith. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. Nothing's too hard for God. Well, I don't have much income. God didn't say you had to have money or have a good job. He didn't say that. He said, believe. 
Don't get me off on bleeding because we'll be on that for the rest of the night. But he said his sheep hear his voice and the people that don't understand what he said is because they can't hear what he said. That's why there are those in the church in the end who hear and do. And there's why those that hear and don't do. That's why those in the storms of life, they fall and they fail. And there are those who just triumph over it. It's, I didn't write this. He did. You'll find nothing is said in Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. It never says anything about you might lose. It simply says if you hear and you do. And in the process of doing, it involves digging down until you find the rock. That's the study and the, the time frame. You're, re, you're, you're relating to God until that word comes. You'll know when the revelation comes because you'll, your shovel will hear something that goes dink. And when you dink, you found the rock. You're there. You'll find the light comes on and you'll say, praise God. Amen. Your house won't fall. You'll be here as long as time exists. And you won't ever have these fearful moments. Oh, I don't know. You'll just be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You won't look back because everything ugly and deceitful was behind you. But if we're not careful, one of the terrible judgments of God on nice people is Romans 11. It's just a terrible, terrible judgment. You read this and then we'll go back to Matthew 7 and we'll close. Romans 11 and verse 8. This is terrible judgment. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It says, God has given them the spirit of slumber. Why would God give anybody a spirit of slumber? Would it not be because when he gave them an opportunity, they weren't interested in it, so he said, you won't be interested anymore. So he says, God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. The little girl will hear the word and go out and drink and carouse and conceive in the backseat of a car, having listened many times to the word. The little boy gets A's from his parents because he's a good boy, goes out and gets drunk, watches some nasty stuff. How can this be? How can this be? Well, I'll tell you one thing. All you've heard hasn't convicted you. Would you agree? You haven't been convicted about that being wrong. You've heard it. You say, I guess so. I don't know. I don't know. But when you're really convicted about it, you say, you know, I, he's talking to me. God's talking to me. I, that's exactly right. Now, Matthew 7, in closing. There's some other things to say, but I want to close with this. In light of what I've said tonight, if this is true, I was shown today something I never had quite seen before. You know, the sower and the seed, the different kinds of soil. You realize only one-fourth of the people that hear the word are going to get it? The three-quarters of the people that the seed was given to didn't last, it didn't work? Only a quarter. That's 25%. Now, you want to be one of them. But I don't know how any of us can tell if you are or not. I mean, God sees hearts and we see lives. We see how we live. But he said, one-fourth of them that heard the word will with gladness receive it and bear fruit. Only one-fourth. Does that mean you don't preach to anybody else? You preach to all of them, don't you? Everybody will get to hear it. We'll all get to hear it. I know that one day I will have to answer to God for you. And I, I surely would like to be able to say what Paul said. I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of, of God. Lost a few members over it, but stood my ground. And God, you blessed the ones that stayed with it. Some will leave, some will stay. Now, let me ask you a question again. In light of what I said tonight, as we close, 
What part of the Sermon on the Mount then do you preach to people who don't want to hear it? What do we leave out? Or what do we, uh, what do we do with it? What today in this modern hour that we're in, what does a loving and a caring church do for pews full of people if they're there, if they're there? Pews full of people who are only casually interested in the, in the gospel. They don't come during the week because they don't want to go back to school and go through all that teaching. They come to church to be, to be blessed or entertained or uh, edified in some way, not to learn and get convicted and, and deal with things in their life. So what does a modern church do with churches full of people? You go out in the highways, the byways, and you invite them in. You tell them all everything's going to be fine. So they come into that environment, and they're sitting there, and, and they'll fight you in a minute. And they won't do what you say. If Chris, you leave that alone. Leave divorce and remarriage out too because they'll, they'll quit over those. So you preach it anyway. What are they going to do? Will you not have to give them something to do? A program? Uh, activity of some sort? Uh, make it comfortable? Make it happy? Don't you have to do something so these people will feel good about themselves or about God? Of course you would. What will God say when it's over? What will God say, first of all, to the ones he'll judge the harshest, the ministers, the preachers? What will he say to them? And then what will he say to all the, because judgment begins at the house of God. What will he say to all the people that he will show them in eternity with all the ability that he has to record every moment, second, detail of your life, all those opportunities, that time you were so convicted, that time you felt so bad about something you did, that time you really got alone and dealt with yourself and oh, I, and then you let it go and quit. What would he say? See, we don't want to be those people who, who fail and fall apart there. We don't want some kind of a artificial form of religion to replace the gospel. I'm glad for all the things that people do to serve the Lord. I also know that when, when I, I look at what I preach, obviously it's not a big, big popular thing. Not many of us here. I realize this. With all the things that religion is doing today, and we do this, and we have a gymnasium, we have ball games and sports, and we have referees when they get in a fight to stop all of that. And we, they don't do that. All the things that we float loans to build and to buy and to make pretty and big and the advertisements in the paper and all the goodies you get. I think Jesus came down to this at the end of the most intense three chapters in Scripture. He brought us to this one thing. Wherefore, whoever hears my word and does it, he said nothing about our activities. I'm sure there's a place for all of the goodness that we do to help people. I'm for that. But nothing ever, ever should take the place of the one essential reason why we are here tonight, and that's discipleship. To be disciples under the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is growing up into him in the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. And we cannot get there unless we teach and inform the church and then reteach it and then teach it one more time or 10 more times. And we keep doing it until these things begin to take their place. It's never easy. A lot of people resist. They get dull. All of these things happen. But we must not, in spite of how we feel, we must never quit. We must never give up. The kingdom of heaven is worth all the disappointments in this life we'll have to go through. It's worth more than all we can fathom with our minds. It's worth more than championships and new homes and diamond rings. It is an abode and relationship with God, which we are now allowed to have a foretaste of, to taste the powers, to taste the good word of God now. 
He said again in verse 24, whoever hears these words of mine, these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him unto a man which built his house on a rock. The winds blew, the flood came and beat upon that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Shall we all reach the end of our days? Shall we all, if the Lord comes while we're all alive, shall we be able to stand before God acceptable unto him? Amen. This is the Sermon on the Mount. That's where it leads us. That's where it ends. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the treasure of your word. We thank you for the power you've given it. For you said that it will not return void. You said the gospel is the power of God. And I speak power to these people tonight. Power to loose them from all the bondages of this age and this world, their flesh. I preach power tonight to these folks that are sitting here that they might be loose from all the indifference and their lethargic life. For those that aren't here, for those who watch, those who hear this message, I speak power to you. Power is the word of God. May it reach into the deepest recesses of your heart, bring you out of the doldrums, bring you out of defeat and listlessness and bring you into the presence of God with renewed vitality, new interest, new hope. I pray, Lord, that everybody in this church, every member in this church, everybody that calls this home, that every single one of them will be saved. And in the last days that we will all believe the same things the same way. I ask you to do this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.